June of 2020, our class had its first session. Reading classic novels soon became our one obsession. With COVID-19 raging, we had nowhere we could go. So we zoomed in and recorded this stupid fucking show. We're reading books. We're killing trees. Our housemates and our spouses are saying, stop it, please. We're reading books. We're killing cedars. And Miss Charlotte's finishing school for wayward readers. Charlotte is our teacher and she's very optimistic that she can teach us something, even something quite simplistic. She's really quite an expert, has a dog named Mr. Darcy. But if she thinks we can learn, she's got her head right up her arsey. We're reading books, we're killing trees. Our housemates and our spouses are saying, Stop it, please, we're reading books. We're killing cedars at Miss Charlotte's finishing school for wayward readers. Daniel plays with puppets, which is just a little weird. He also is Canadian and has a luscious beard. Jerry has just graduated university, so she's the baby of this podcast, don't you see? Andrew is the oldest and has trouble concentrating. He thinks he's pretty funny, but his sense of humor is grating. Emmy is a doctor, so she knows things quite obscure, but her degrees in agriculture, so she mostly knows me more. We're reading books until we're sore. My eyes! We're answering Miss Charlotte and competing for a score. Ask us why we're doing this, we really couldn't say. But listen and just maybe you'll enjoy it anyway. We're reading books, we're killing trees. Our housemates and our spouses are saying, stop it. Welcome to Miss Charlotte's Finishing School for Wayward Readers, a podcast about reading moldering tomes. This is episode nine, Decomposition. Miss Charlotte's Finishing School for Wayward Readers is an audio production of the Okama Theatre Group, or YTG, a nonprofit theatre company based in Japan. If you want to support the theatrical work we do, you can head over to ytg.jp and click the support button. Actually, if you want to subscribe to this podcast, there should be a pod... By the time you hear this, there should be a podcast button that you can click there, and there'll be an option to subscribe to this podcast. All right, on this show... We have four wayward readers, including myself. Each episode, we sit down, talk about the week's assigned chapters, make presentations, which we call reader responses, just to be fancy, and we answer questions to compete for points. Our guru, who can hold her breath for a disturbingly long time, frequently in the middle of a sentence, is Miss Charlotte. The reader with the most points. Oh, sorry. I always do that. I always trample. Miss Charlotte. I, you think by episode nine, I'd stop trampling over everybody's thing. Okay. Um, yeah, let's, let's leave that in. The, the, the listeners can know I'm an idiot. Uh, the, the reader with the most points at the end of the show will be dubbed Teacher's Pet. And the reader with the lowest score, sometimes in the negative numbers, will wear the dunce cap. It is only an imaginary dunce cap, but the fabric it is made of is covered in tiny barbs to scourge the wearer and discourage them from wearing it again. When we complete our reading of Wuthering Heights, all these points will be totaled and the winner will get... Oh, whatever. Uh, if you have suggestions, free, feel free to email us at readers at ytg.jp. Our wayward readers are, in order of height, shortest to tallest, Judy Ito, the Lilliputian-sized assistant artistic director of the Oklahoma Theatre Group. I'm pretty average on height. You guys are just all Canadian. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, Dr. Emmy Doe, no bigger than Thumbelina, but always looking down on you from the top of some goddamn mountain. I'm not the shortest person this time. Daniel Wishes, of extremely normal height, a handy size for a puppeteer. I'm the no most normal person on this podcast. And myself, Andrew Woolner, theater maker, not normal, and too tall for pants. And of course, as I said, Miss Charlotte Sampson is here ready to crack the whip. There will be more subdued whip cracking this this episode. Um, I'm a little bit hungover this morning. My wife and I bought a new car yesterday, and so we uh we got some cheap ass bubbly to toast it, and uh, the toasting went on a little bit late into the night. 
There's nothing that mixes better than automobiles and alcohol. <laughs> All right. Welcome, everyone. Let's well, get we reading. Toasting while driving, Andrew. <laughs> what the hell do you think we are? What kind of car did you get? Uh, it's a Toyota Corolla hatchback. I know that's not very exciting, but it's 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 exciting to us. No, it's a reliable it vehicle. Really good on gas. Yeah. This podcast brought to you by Toyota, apparently. Corollas get good mileage. All right. For our first segment, Toyota. Oh, 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 what a feeling. Uh, anyone remember those commercials or am I the only one old enough for that? Uh, you enough. got it, Park Pontiac. It's more of a Winnipeg thing. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. You are the only one from Winnipeg. All right. Yes. So uh, are we? Let's, let's roll into the uh, chapter summary. Oh, right. That's me. <laughs> Sorry. Um, did I write one? Sorry. Chapter 27. Kathy goes to meet Linton. Once again, it's just awful. Heathcliff shows up. It seems like Linton and Heathcliff really want Kathy to escort him back to Wuthering Heights. She very reluctantly agrees. When they get there, Heathcliff takes them prisoner and demands that Kathy and Linton get married before Linton dies, which is most likely going to be real soon. Kathy and Linton are married, but we don't get to see that or hear any of the details because Nellie was trapped in another room. Chapter 28. Nellie has been trapped in a room at the Heights for five days and is finally released. She asks Linton where Kathy is, and Linton is like, mm, she's mm, locked up. Mm, I'm her boss now. Mm, oh, my sugar candy's delicious. Mm. <laughs> so Nellie goes back to the Grange. She tells Edgar what's happening, and then a bunch of boring stuff happens involving property laws. All the listeners are looking forward to that being discussed in the podcast. <laughs> Kathy escapes from Wuthering Heights and watches over Edgar in his final moments before shuffling off this mortal coil. Mr. Green arrives at the Grange and fires all the help except for Nellie. Chapter 29. Nellie is like, wouldn't it be great if Kathy and Linton could live here at the Grange? But that probably won't happen, and it doesn't happen. Heathcliff plans to rent out the Grange and make Kathy earn her keep at Wuthering Heights. Heathcliff tells Nellie all about how dead Kathy's ghost has been haunting him all these years. And when they buried Edgar, Heathcliff took a little peek in Kathy's coffin, and she looked great. And then Heathcliff got the sexton to remove the side of dead Kathy's coffin, the side that's away from Edgar, and then that way, when Heathcliff dies, he can be buried on the other side of dead Kathy, also with the side of his coffin missing, and then I guess they can hold hands and stuff. It's romantic, maybe? <laughs> Alive Kathy says, Bye, Nellie, come visit me at Wuthering Heights, and Heathcliff says, Yeah, no, don't ever do that, Nellie. That's my summary. Can you find the one mistake I made on purpose? To play this game with you. <laughs> Linton. It's not Linton. It's Edgar that's going to die. They're both going to die. Well, but I mean, the reason why he's forcing him to get married is he wants them to get married before Edgar dies. No, he actually wants to wait till after Edgar dies, but he's worried that Linton is going to oh. die first. Bummer. So I think you said Nellie was trapped in a room for five days. I think it's four days, five nights and four days, because she starts there at night. Was that the mistake? Uh, well, that, I didn't make that mistake intentionally. I wrote the text was five days. <laughs> like, yeah. the text said five days, so that's what I put in my description. Don't look to me for help this week, because I'm still hungover, and I honestly didn't catch it. I'll I'll reveal the answer. I said all the listeners are looking forward to that being discussed in the podcast, that being property laws. <laughs> and the fact is, is that none of the listeners are looking forward to that. <laughs> I mean, well that's probably true. I don't know. I think property laws, 18th century property law. Of course, I'm not one of the listeners. So... <laughs> So, yeah. All right. Thank you for that, Daniel. All right, Emmy, what do you have for us? I really, really, really wish I had Daniel or Andrew's ability to, like, mix, pre-mix and, like, create something cool because this would have been an awesome one for that. 
And with voice effects, I had some pretty cool voice recordings, but I didn't know how to splice it together with music. And it just, so I'm just going to do all the voices myself and I'm not very good at accents. So this is my attempt. So here we go. It's an infomercial about one of the sections. Why, hello. It's me again, Madame Mio Exorcist Extraordinaire. Do you have a ghost hunting you? Call me and I'll give them a talking to. I can promise you that. The spirits speak to me and I speak to the spirits. And I'll tell you what you need to do in order to find some peace. The lines are open and you can call me now at 1-800-EXORCIST. That is 1-800, the letter X-O-R-C-I-O-R-S-T. What are you waiting for? Call me for your free consultation on how to deal with these pestering spirits. Ah, yes. We have a Heath on the line. She has disturbed me night and day through 18 years, incessantly, remorselessly. It began oddly. Hmm, I see. You know, I was wild after she died and eternally from dawn to dawn, praying for her to return to me, her spirit. I dug her grave the night she was buried to try to hold her in my arms when I heard and felt her presence. Oh, my. A sudden sense of relief flowed from my heart through every limb. I was sure she was with me. I felt her by me. I could almost see her, and yet I could not. I ought to have sweat blood then, from the anguish of my yearning, from the fervor of my supplications to have but one glimpse. But I had not one. And since then, sometimes more and sometimes less. I have been the sport of that intolerable torture. When I slept in her chamber, I couldn't lie there for um, the moment. I closed my eyes. She was either outside my window or sliding back the panels or entering the room or even resting her darling head on the same pillow. Ah, yes. It seems it is the classic, classic haunting, our lost lover. Wait, wait, what is this? This is, this is most unusual. Usually the spirits only speak to me, but this Kathy reaches directly out to you, Heath. Oh, Kathy, I knew you'd come speak to me. I knew it. I knew you were there. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, to reach out to your pestering spirits and fly in some closure. Wait, I don't have any closure. I had to dig up or get... Oh, I'm sorry, Heath. It's time to open the phone lines for these other colors. Yes, that's right, ladies and gentlemen. The lines are open and you can call me at 1-800-EXORCIST. That's right, 1-800-LETTER-X-O-R-C-I-S-T. What are you waiting for? Call me now for some free consultations on how to deal with these lingering spirits. I think, thank you, Emmy. <laughs> I think they turned into one voice. I <laughs> I gotta, you may have you may have me on the ropes in terms of worst accent in this podcast. <laughs> worst accent work in this podcast. I only ranged over like a region of a continent. You, I, I mean, some of that. I was trying to figure out what was the accent you were going for because some of it sounded German. It was Cajun for a while. I was like, wow, that's that's a really good Cajun. Oh no, wait, no, can't say the letter. Can't say little, the letter a W. A bit of strong bad in there, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I was. I was really channeling, trying to channel Miss Cleo, but I really can't do. Um, I couldn't do her accent, so then I was like, okay, scrap that. Go for the French-Canadian accent. And then, obviously, I lost that. <laughs> let's, let's, let's say it's a global accent. Let's just leave it at that. It's from somewhere, and possibly everywhere. All right, uh, let's give you a grade for that. Um... I do like the the selected passages that you pulled out, and 
I admit I wasn't expecting that you would go like psychic infomercial. I was trying to figure out, okay, what kind of product could you possibly sell in these chapters? Maybe the sugar candy that, that Linton is <laughs> snacking down on. But I like the direction you took with it, um, especially, and as we're going to get to into the discussion, um, this is, this is a pretty ghosty, pretty, pretty gothic set of chapters. Uh, it's kind of, kind of, we're kind of at peak goth here. Um, what with Heathcliff's, um, nocturnal disinterment activities. Um, so yeah, definitely appreciate the choice of, of subject matter here. Um, again, less said about the accent, the better. Um, <laughs> also, just got to critique you on the phone number. It's a bit awkward, exorcist. You know, infomercials, they, they got to have something nice and snappy, something that sticks in the brain. Although I guess it did kind of stick in my brain. So uh. anyway, I'm going to give you a B plus. Um, okay. You lost most of, um, I'm sorry, I'm not going to sugarcoat this. You lost most of the points because the accent, it really was all over the place. I mean, good effort though. Good effort. Uh, today's vocab corner, again, very limited. Last week I had no words. This week I've got effed. Mm. So as in, keep your effed fingers off me. Uh, Heathcliff he says that to um, to Catherine Jr. When she tries to, it sounds like she's trying to hug him or something because the next line is like, I'd rather be hugged by a blah, blah, blah. Um, and and effed, it's apparently it's uh, regional. It comes from an old English word, but it basically means a newt. Archaically, it meant any small lizard, but uh, I think by this point it was, it meant a newt. So he's describing her fingers as like a lizard's, like sort of fingers. So, you know, not intended to be complimentary. That's, yeah. I think a newt is an amphibian. You're correct. Daniel, two points for the uh, impromptu biology lesson. So let's move on to discussion questions. This is the part of the show where Miss Charlotte asks us questions and we struggle to answer them. So we kind of opened up the podcast with a little bit about how this fit into the fit under the umbrella of the gothic novel. Knowing what we do about gothic literature, what kinds of functions do you see these chapters serving in terms of how we how we think of Heathcliff as a character? So first of all, let's just go over some of the stuff that Heathcliff does. I mean, Daniel, you gave us the, the summary of it, but let's just very quickly, what are Heathcliff's crimes in these three chapters? Because there's quite a few. Crimes or just sort of creepy shit he does? Oh, let's say both. Okay. Assault. Kidnapping. Uh, ass uh, assault and battery. I don't know what the legal term for is it for it is but like forcing a marriage bribing is that do you say typing bribing bribing yeah, that's oh right. yeah 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 bribed, he bribed that guy yeah i don't know is that bribing though because that guy he's not a public official oh. like a lawyer's not a public official he just got to him first it's not like he uh, bribed a magistrate yeah. but Brave yeah tampering yeah desic like um i'm sure there's a there's something on the books about like desecrating a grave like they were digging it up anyway, but he he talks about having breaking into the coffin the first time. That's right. Child endangerment. <laughs> Is there like a a moment where you'll be like, yeah, you got them all, or do we just keep <laughs> riffing? <laughs> no, no, no. I think that's sufficient. Um. Oh, uttering death threats. Mm. I mean, he's just ticking all the boxes. So, given that he takes all of these boxes and does such very grotesque things in a very short span of time. Do we see anything even potentially redeeming about Heathcliff in this set of chapters? And that's kind of what I want to want to zero in on. Like, is he a sort of caricature gothic villain? You know, he hits a lot of the beats just in terms of what he does. Or is there, is there any sympathy we can drum up for Heathcliff? I think it depends on if you believe in ghosts. Okay. Emmy, you've got your hand up. Well, and also if you believe in mental health issues. 
Like, the guy is tortured. He hasn't been able to sleep. He hasn't, you know, he's dealing with probably psychotic episodes. Well, yeah, I mean, they obviously, they didn't have the same sort of mental health discourse that we have today. It would not have been quite as, let's say, granular or nuanced as we tend to as we tend to think of mental illness today. Um, but definitely being sort of the tortured soul, let, let, let's say it is compatible with our sympathies. Like, we can, we can think of Heathcliff in terms of someone who, for all that he makes others suffer, is himself suffering a great deal. Is there any other mitigating circumstances that we can think of in terms of Heathcliff and his actions here. And again, not that we're excusing Heathcliff, we're, we're trying to, I guess, weave a tapestry of a more complex character than just the, the stock gothic villain. That's kind of what I want to suggest here. And if we're going to do that, let's, let's take, let's take stock of all the various threads that we can weave together about Heathcliff. Well, I mean, if you do believe in ghosts, and if you take what he says about Catherine's ghost at face value, then he's basically been tortured by her for 18 years. He's had her, like, sort of, like, right there for 18 years, essentially teasing him the whole time. And you can, you can understand how he might get to the point where he would do anything to be able to sleep or to be able to think or to be able to function. And so that could, that could, that could explain, that could, exp I mean, that's how he does explain his actions. Um, but it's a question of, is this something that's like, is how real is this? And then the other thing is, we're also getting this through Nellie Dean. And the only, the only corroboration we have is Heathcliff's reaction when Lockwood thought he saw a ghost in the, was it third chapter? Third or fourth chapter? So his reaction there does actually make this seem more plausible. So not that Nellie Dean's making it a whole cloth, but we also, we also only have her word. And she's done, a, she did a lot of shitty things in, in this, in these chapters. I think she's shown herself to be even less trustworthy than usual. So I don't know when, especially when she writes these big paragraphs, she has these big paragraphs for Heathcliff. I find them like, he does his, when he does his, his villain speeches, I find those less than convincing. Now, for reader, for, for listeners who are just tuning in, and why the hell would you jump in in episode nine with a podcast that's like a serial podcast about reading a book? But I posited last week that maybe, maybe Nellie Dean is the Sith Lord. <laughs> Those are my two takes on this. I, if there's anything more subtle than that, I probably missed it. I know this is slightly off topic, but you said it twice, so I can't help but like focus on it. You said your reading of this Heathcliff's tale changes depending on whether you as the reader believe in ghosts or not. But like, if you're reading Harry Potter and you don't believe in magic, that doesn't change the way you read Harry Potter, right? So... Well, I meant like believe in the ghosts of this, like believe that the ghosts are intent in the literature intended to be actual ghosts, right? And not like, are we supposed to believe that that what happened to Lockwood early on in the book was an actual ghost or was it like a dream? Or is what happening is happening to Heathcliff just because he's so obsessed with Catherine or because he has mental issues or or what? It's like, do we believe in the ghosts of Wuthering Heights? Do we believe that Emily Bronte meant those to be like ghosts? Or did she mean them to be something else? Are the characters deluded? So I was being glib when I said, if you believe in ghosts. Well, that's, that's what I meant. You know what? I'm still kind of hungover, and so this might not be a good idea, but let's, let's talk about whether or not we believe in ghosts. And <laughs> not necessarily in our own lives. I'm not asking anyone to give any sort of metaphysical defense of ghosthood or whatnot, but... In terms of the novel, do you think we're supposed to believe that Kathy's ghost is real, that we're not, or is there a third option somewhere in the middle or something else entirely? So, like, who's on team ghosts are real and uh, who's uh, who ain't afraid of no ghosts? Boston makes me feel good. I mean, Boston clearly made Heathcliff feel good once he, <laughs> you know, dug up Catherine's body and was like, phew, okay, she's there. But yeah, who here thinks that Emily Bronte, or, or let's just say the text, you know, death of the author thing, who here thinks that there are literal ghosts 
or at least one literal ghost, in this text. And take some time to really think about it. If you're telling me that this chapter is peak gothic, I'm inclined to... I was, I've been waiting to find out, to see if there was something that really twigged it for me, and I've, I'm not, I am not convinced that we're supposed to believe that ghosts are real. Okay, so we have one vote for no ghosts. Uh, let's see. Judy, you have not said a lot in a while, and you were absent last week, so it's your turn to speak. And you've got a new microphone, so let's use it. I'm also on Team No Ghost. I think... I mean, he's obviously affected and from Catherine's the whole tragedy before, but I think the ghost thing is, is kind of like, not metaphorical, but just talking about his mental health, past traumas. Okay. Thank you, Jury. Um... Daniel, what are your ghost opinions? Well, I, I think at the time that this book was written, there were probably more stories written about ghosts than mental health. But <laughs> I'm on team. I think she left it purposefully ambiguous. All right. So we've got two no ghosts, one for team ambiguous. Emmy, what are your thoughts? Team no ghost. Oh, I'm supposed to explain myself. Um, yeah, oh, yeah, for the sorry for the audience that, for the audience who are listening, Emmy was just sort of bobbing her head up and down. <laughs> um, yeah, Emmy, it's not a visual medium. Um, no, I, I, I don't, I don't think there are ghosts. I think um, it, the ghosts are meant to, or the references to ghosts are meant to show kind of like a tortured. Ah, but then. Lockwood. Got two eyewitnesses. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if, like, it's important. Maybe I'm team ambiguous. Like, yeah. I think, I think Heathcliff is tortured and maybe has mental health issues. Um, but the ghost is just kind of meant as a thread to show that or illustrate that and it doesn't matter if they're real or not. All right. Can I just put this out there? I don't think there's anybody in this, any character in this book who doesn't have mental health issues. <laughs> except maybe, except maybe Dr. Mr. Kenneth. <laughs> no, that, that guy definitely does. <laughs> <laughs> and he's a ghost. Let's talk about a rather well-known gothic trope that... I think is best exemplified um, for modern listeners in the well-known media property Scooby-Doo. Um, <laughs> I think that Scooby-Doo, as an oeuvre, is a worthy spiritual successor to the gothic genre. And I'm going to explain the, the, the specific trope that I'm looking for, which is... Wait, are you going to tell us they're going to pull Heathcliff's head, like, face off at the end, and it's going to be like Old Man Withers? No, no. No, I'm, oh, okay. I'm not, I'm not going to go there, but okay. it's, this is it's sort of Kathy's background. It's ghost and it's Joseph. <laughs> yeah, with, with a fog machine and a projector. <laughs> okay, <clears throat> I want to establish this as background to the gothic genre because the whole end of Scooby-Doo trope where they pull off the mask and find that it was, you know, Old Man Withers, etc. That sometimes happens in older gothic fiction. Like, where there will be this weird supernatural happening, like a suit of armor moved, and then it, it will turn out that it was, you know, just the wind, or that somebody was inside the suit of armor and scaring the heroine deliberately. So there's already an established precedent of ghosty goings-on being later undercut in gothic fiction, that we have some definitive proof that, no, there's no ghost this is just part of some evil person's plot. Um, so that's why I think Scooby-Doo is a good spiritual successor to the gothic genre. Zoinks. I don't think I, I would write an essay about that. I mean, I wouldn't write off the idea completely. I'd read that essay. <laughs> I bring this up as background to sort of give you an idea of how readers would have anticipated 
some answer to the ghost question. There was a bit of an impetus to solve the mysteries in gothic fiction, that the eerie happenings should have an earthly explanation. Like, it can't be entirely supernatural. So I think that if we keep that in mind, that we have an audience that is already sort of primed to read about the ghosty stuff that happens in the first few chapters, like in chapter three, they are already looking for hints that this ghost nonsense is just nonsense. You know, that it was just branches of the tree, that it wasn't an actual human hand. It was just Lockwood having had a real creepy dream in an unfamiliar place, etc. blah, blah, blah. We're looking for some definitive proof because that happens in gothic fiction. We're not really given much proof one way or the other, are we? Because, yeah, Heathcliff knows that Catherine's literal body is in the ground. He can no longer sort of hoodwink himself into thinking that she's still, you know, walking around somehow. But in terms of whether there's an actual haunting going on, we're not given any sufficient resolution that doesn't come from just a sort of unshakable confidence that ghosts aren't real. So even if, as a reader, you can bring yourself around to, well, th this has to be all in Heathcliff's, Heathcliff's head, right? And even if you can quite reasonably, I mean, I don't think anyone was thinking, you know, literal ghosts exist. Mid-19th mid century was... Well, we can talk about the, the sorts of superstitions that went on and, and whether ghosts were thought to be real, but let's just say that even then it was more fringe. The fact that we don't get sort of the ghost money shot, that we don't get the big reveal of what Lockwood's version of the ghost actually was, and that all we have at the end is the sense that Heathcliff is coming to terms in his own mind a little bit about the, the supposed hauntings, wouldn't have given the satisfying resolution that lovers of gothic fiction, I, I think, were looking for. So it's, it's sort of an unsolved mystery as far as the novel is concerned. And all we have is the sort of interior journey of Heathcliff coming to terms with his just profound grief. I mean, I can't say that digging up your lover's corpse to gaze upon it and, you know, kind of sneakily arrange a posthumous conjugal visit is uh, healthy, but it's certainly, it's certainly not persisting in his belief in ghosts at, at that point, at the very least. <laughs> So I guess maybe he's making some progress, but still, just in terms of the narrative, we don't ever have that sort of probability collapse where it's like, oh, no, no, we're absolutely certain that ghosts aren't real. It's still textually ambiguous a little bit. Was there still like, so was there an, in the, either the time period that Emily Bronte was writing or the time period where the story happens, which is about 18... Oh, something. Um, was there the same kind of like aversion and disgust with death that we have in the modern world? Because there, there, I mean, especially like in rural areas, you're exposed to like death with animals and stuff like that a lot more, and also just you know people died a lot more. And then there's also the his, like the tradition of family crypts where you like you put the next person in, so you see all the dead people who are already in there. What was the? Do you know what the situation was? The Victorians were pretty creepy weirdos about death and corpses. Because um, they did the they did the death pictures where you like pose with your dead family members and stuff like that. Yeah, that was later in the nineteenth century. Of course, photography itself being not Daniel's holding up the death tarot card for some reason. <laughs> and making... Very atmospheric, Daniel. Uh, I'll give you a point for that. I mean, Daniel's the only one who's got points today. Yeah, geez, catch up. Yeah, Victorians kept a lot of memento mori, and sometimes they were like little bits of dead people, like locks of hair in memorial rings or lockets. We mentioned the corpse photography, which later in the 19th century, when like family photography became a thing, 
like when photography was more widespread enough that, you know, your average middle class family could get like one family photograph that they could, you know, hang on the wall, whatever. They would absolutely have like funerary photography sessions where the newly dead corpse would be sat up in a chair and dressed and the family would gather around with, you know, grandma's body. Or or little Junior's body. Yeah, they they. they mm. For the listeners, if you're if you're interested in this kind of macabre thing, just l- literally Google Victorian death photography, Victorian funereal photography, something like that, and there's some crazy. You're gonna see some crazy shit. <laughs> so, uh, what I will say is that they were, uh, as as you pointed out, uh, Andrew. I'll give you two points for it because it's a good point. More comfortable, I guess, with sort of regular representations of death. There was just a lot more of it around. Having said that, digging someone up to gaze upon their face for the sake of looking at them one more time, that would have been super duper weird, even back then. Not done, which is of course why Nellie Dean is sort of horrified at hearing Heathcliff talk about what he's done, and why Heathcliff talks about it with such a weird perverted sense of pride. Like, this is what I did to give myself closure. And it's it would have been as bizarre for them as I think it is for us today. But they might have perhaps had a bit more sympathy. Like, they would have understood a little bit better the impulse to to gaze upon a dead body as a sort of, let's say, an exercise in assuaging the soul. Because they did that in much less extreme ways. Uh, in their own lives as a matter of course. Just, you know, not usually with bodies as old as Catherine's is by now. Daniel, you've got your hand up. Yeah. At this point in the story, Catherine's been dead for 18 years. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Is it, is it very strange that her body hasn't um, rotted at all? It's like really well preserved that he can still see her face. Like, that seems a bit supernatural that she's waiting for him to join her before he starts, before she starts decomposing, as he says. Emmy, you're the resident scientist. What do you know about decomposition? Yeah, there's no freaking way that she wouldn't have started decomposing unless she well, was embalmed. To, to just interject here, and this, this may not have been Emily Bronte's intention, because I'm not sure how familiar she was with this kind of thing, but... Um, depending on what you're buried in and how much oxygen is there, like, so there's a lot of different factors, how much moisture there is in the ground, um, how the coffin is sealed, like, there's all these things that we actually, people don't actually decay as quickly as you might think if they're buried. So it is, he, and he didn't say she looked like the day she was buried, he, he said she was recognizable, right? And it's, after 18 years, it's completely possible she wouldn't have been reduced to, like, gel and bones well maybe not gel and bones but recognizable after 18 years like she's left out in a field yeah that would be that would be weird yeah she's not in a swamp she's at the bottom of a moor it's not that moist emmy are you looking at pictures of dead people on the internet right now (laughs) i am because your your face looks like a bit like that's what you're doing (laughs) i'm not okay i'm thinking about it as i clip my toenails oh okay just (laughs) Images going through your head. Well, Heathcliff says, this is in chapter 29, in the paragraph where he explains what he has done. I'll tell you what I did yesterday. I got the sexton who was digging Linton's grave to remove the earth off her coffin lid, and I opened it. I thought once I would have stayed there. Then, when I saw her face again, it is hers yet. He had hard work to stir me, but he said it would change if the air blew on it. So I struck one side of the coffin loose and covered it up. The person digging the grave as much says what you alluded to, Andrew, which is, well, you don't want to leave it open too long, or the decomposition price process might speed up. I mean, although I think that guy was just like, dude, stop doing that. He was trying to find, because honestly, 10 minutes in the air is not going to like putrefy a corpse. It's, I don't think it's been in the ground for 18 years. Well, but, yeah, yeah. The, uh, uh... But it mean, but it, it indicates that Emily Bronte was aware of that, going back to my point. So again, it's ambiguous. Emily Bronte is the exact sort of creepy person who would go out of her way to learn about corpses and shit. I don't know. Like, here in Japan, you know how they put the dead bodies in those, like, 
on the, in those stone little things. So this was before they burned them. So like my great someone, someone was like in one of those things. And then when they put the next person in, the person was still there, but like was decomposed enough that you could just kind of shove over the bones. That's like within five years. And that's like stone. Yeah, but it's it's also open air, right? Like there's a lot of there's a lot of volume of air in that space. I guess, but and the it, it coffin, what I don't know, I'm guessing it's wooden. If it's nailed. Wood is I don't know, man. Yeah, I mean, she's in the ground and it's been 18 years. Like my my compost doesn't take that long yeah. to turn to dirt. Yeah, but you do active things to make the compost turn to dirt. And you don't bury it, you don't bury it six feet down. Hmm. And that's, that's my understanding, is it, it's, is it, this could be, this could be natural or it could be supernatural. It's ambiguous, just like everything else. One thing that we can consider is that the idea of a corpse being perfectly preserved years after its death was already kind of a, a supernatural trope. I mean, Catholic saints, for example, we have a lot of miracle narratives about, like, bits of saints' body parts being perfectly preserved long after their death, and that being evidence of their sort of miraculous doings. So I think that because, and, and again, this is narrated to us by Nellie Dean in the words of Heathcliff, there's enough sort of, and there's the sort of ambiguity over the phrasing, it is hers yet. So not necessarily saying she was perfectly preserved, but preserved enough that Heathcliff recognizes her. It, let's say it skirts the, the, the paranormal in terms of, oh, yeah, this, this could be a sort of miraculously preserved body or no, it could just be that they did a really good job of sealing up that coffin so that the decomposition process was slowed enough. I think that leaving those open-ended questions is kind of what makes it more powerful because it doesn't, it doesn't allow us to solve any of those mysteries. If we remember that this is a story being told for Lockwood's benefit, there's also just the factor that it might be there to kind of creep him out a little bit because mm -hmm. he is still not unconvinced that Kathy's ghost was real. So maybe Nellie Dean is just kind of fucking with him a little bit by emphasizing this particular point. We don't know. But I think that if we're going to just treat it as a work of fiction in the sort of gothic vein, then we should consider the ambiguity as part of how it plays around with gothic conventions. I found something to support Andrew's point. I'm kind of bummed. It says when buried six, when buried six feet down without a coffin in ordinary soil, an uninvolved adult normally takes eight to twelve years to decompose to a skeleton. However, if placed in a coffin, a body can take many years longer, depending on the type of wood used. For example, a solid oak coffin with um, hugely slow will hugely slow the process. There was a case where a body was exhumed in an oak coffin. And it was still in a state of decomposition some 50 years later. And this yep. is a site from the UK. Thank you for that, Emmy. Um, I'm going to give you five points for that bit of independent research. Because uh, I think that uh, that kind of clinches it. That, yeah, this is possible. It's entirely possible that an 18-year-old corpse uh, could have been, I mean, obviously not fresh as a daisy, but, you yeah. know. So Catherine-like enough that Heathcliff is like, oh, my lovely Catherine, <laughs> one more time. Oh. Oh. Okay, here's the gross part. And now is the gross part. <laughs> and I, I, I almost don't want to ask this question, but does anybody else get the impression that when Heathcliff... The first time he tries to dig up Catherine's body before her, her ghost, quote unquote, scares him off. Does anyone else get the impression that he was going in for some like straight up corpse snuggles immediately after her death? Because that was the impression that I got. I mean, not the 18 years later disinterment, but like in the next 
sort of long monologue paragraph of his, uh, the one that starts with, of dissolving her and being more happy still, he answered. I think that's certainly what Nellie Dean wants Lockwood to think. Yeah, that's, that's, that's fair. Yeah, that thought never really crossed my mind. Maybe, maybe I need to read it again. Well, let's look at what he says. You know, I was wild after she died, and eternally from dawn to dawn, praying her to return me to her spirit, to me her spirit. I have a strong faith in ghosts. I have a conviction they, that they can and do exist among us. The day she was buried, there came a fall of snow. In the evening, I went to the churchyard. It blew bleak as winter. All round was solitary. I didn't fear that her fool of a husband would wander up the glen so late, and no one else had business to bring them there. Being alone, and conscious two yards of, of loose earth was the sole barrier between us, I said to myself, I'll have her in my arms again. If she be cold, I'll think it is this north wind that chills me, and if she be motionless, it is sleep. <laughs> Oh god, that's so gross. So this novel has a little bit of something for everyone. Um <laughs> let's see, we've got dog murder, we've got um gun swords, we've got a <laughs> little bit of necrophilia. Attempted necrophilia. Attempted necrophilia. It's a bit of a mixed bag. Emily Bronte certainly doing nothing to dissuade me from my opinion of her being the kinkiest Bronte. Kissing cousins. Don't forget kissing cousins. Okay, well, that wasn't necessarily that weird back then, but I don't know if I have much more of a takeaway other than ew for, for that little <laughs> bit. Um, but I guess if you're if you're on team not ghost and you're looking for evidence that this is just Heathcliff kind of kind of going a little bit bonkers, I'd say that there's some pretty compelling evidence that Catherine's death has so utterly unhinged him that that barrier between life and death is kind of in his mind breaking down a bit that such is his grief over her loss that he's lost a bit of rationality let's say in terms of the permanence of death itself like he cannot bring himself to believe that kathy is dead and it feels almost like an odd sort of mournful closure when he does finally dig up that corpse and open that coffin just to see her. But even then, he cannot help but remark on how like herself she is. I mean, it's sad. It's creepy, but it's also incredibly, incredibly sad. I think we should pick a happier book for <laughs> next season of this podcast. Um, Because I can't fucking do another... I can't do another Wuthering Heights. I can't do another... Okay. Wuthering Heights is, I will say, personally, the second most depressing book of the 19th century. The most depressing book, I accord that honor to Jude the Obscure by Thomas Hardy. Um, so let's not do that one next. Whatever we pick, let's do a fun one. Like, that's my request. As, uh, as, as your professor, I want to do... Just something fun, something lively, something with some excitement and adventure, please. You know, just stating my intent here for the listeners as well. Next season, we're doing something much more fun. We're doing something a bit more <laughs> lighthearted than all of this. All right, on that happy note. Miss Charlotte's Bronte Banquet. Now a food banquet of every kind of dish imaginable. A feast of Bronte. Thank you, Daniel. Uh, this Bronte bite, I've alluded to it before. Emily and Anne sort of shared world. Gondol. So the Bronte kids were precocious. They started writing their, their own little fictional universe uh, in 1826. And that initial sort of shared universe was a uh, glass town where they, you know, took their, their the toy soldiers that Branwell Bronte had gotten and gave them names and personas. And it was kind of like 19th century fanfic. Like there was a Duke of Wellington character that, yeah, real life fanfic. It was kind of weird. But Charlotte and Branwell 
kind of railroaded the the shared universe a, a little bit. They invented their own one called Angria, uh, a, an imaginary kingdom somewhere in Africa. This was, you know, peak colonialism, so it had to be somewhere exotic. But Emily and Anne, being younger, kind of felt left out because Charlotte and... Branwell were kind of calling all the shots in terms of the world building. So they had their own little rebellion. They branched off and formed their own secret world. The world of Gondol, we know very little about it because precious few fragments of the writing about it survive. Uh, the earliest reference to it is in a diary by Emily when she was, yeah, when she was 16 years old. It's kind of an absurd diary entry because you know what, why don't I just read that entry so that we can all be on the same page here. Tabby, that would be Tabby Aykroyd, longtime family servant, said just now, come Anne, pilopoutate, which is sort of a phonetic representation of peel a potato. Um, Aunt has come into the kitchen just now and said, where are you? Anne answered, on the floor. Aunt Papa opened the parlor door and gave Branwell a letter saying, Here, Branwell, read this and show it to your aunt and Charlotte. The Gondals are discovering the interior of Galdeen. Sally mostly is washing in the back kitchen. So this is the earliest reference we have to the kingdom of Gondol, which was an island in the North Pacific um, with a climate similar to the north of England. Uh, Galdeen, G-A-A-L-D-I-N-E was a tropical island south of Gondol and a sort of colonial holding of it, because again, peak colonialism. And the fact that it appears in this just sort of seamless transition from everyday boring household stuff to this completely fake world that Emily and Anne were just sort of picking away at in little fragments here and there. Uh, Emily wrote like dozens of poems set in Gondol and from the points of view of its characters. In fact, like just about nothing of the Gondol prose survives. Everything that we know about it has been reconstructed, but the Gondol poems, we do at least have records of those, and they're kind of the only way that we really know anything about the supposed timeline and history of the land of Gondol. But the Gondol stories were kind of like an early Game of Thrones, just in terms of their content, like political intrigue and assassinations. But Emily was, it's hard to tell whether she was ashamed or proud of Gondol, because she kept a lot of its notes secret. And one time Charlotte Bronte found a notebook of Gondol poems, and Emily apparently just tore a strip off of her when Charlotte Bronte suggested that they could be compiled and published. Emily wanted to keep Gondol's existence very much under wraps. I don't know, I feel that that's kind of, kind of a shame. Like, it would be many years later before Tolkien would legitimize the notion of just creating ex incredibly detailed alternate universes with just extensive history and culture. I mean, there, there have been fantasy narratives up to that point in literature, but very much sort of political satires, like Gulliver's Travels. This was, it seems, just an alternate world that the Brontes created for their own pleasure. And yeah, it would be many, many years until that sort of activity would be legitimized as a literary exercise in its own right. Daniel, you've got your hand up. Is there any evidence that Wuthering Heights was originally based off of an earlier work that took place in Gondol? There is hint of some themes. We do not know exactly how it would have played out, because so much of the Gondol prose was either not written out in a narrative form, or it's just been completely lost. So all we have are some sort of sketches and outlines, and the most comprehensive attempt to reconstruct Gondol, uh, based off of the poems, comes from Fanny Ratchford in 1955. Uh, the title is Gondol's Queen, a novel in verse. But even that is a reconstruction with a lot of speculation on kind of how things would have gone. We can say that there are some hints of the Gondol material in Wuthering Heights, but it's very unlikely that it was just a straight-up adaptation, if that answers your question. Guess we'll never know for sure, though. As with so many things in Emily Bronte's life, we will never know for sure. 
Okay, uh, let's move on to the cathartic pop quiz. Um, just for anyone who's strangely tuning into the middle of a serialized podcast, cathartic pop quiz is when Miss Charlotte asks hopefully snappy questions that we hopefully come up with snappy answers to. And when we don't, she um, takes away points. And when we do, she gives us points. The points are arbitrary and frequently capricious. That's why it's fun for Charlotte. All right. So first question, when Linton is begging Catherine not to get him in trouble with his dad, uh, she tells him not to degrade himself into what kind of creature? Uh, not an amphibian, but a reptile. Correct. For three points. Uh, Ellen, tell him how disgraceful this conduct is. Rise and don't degrade yourself into an abject reptile. Don't. So that's three points. Andrew, uh, what evening's amusement does Heathcliff imagine visiting on Catherine and Linton if laws were less strict and tastes less dainty? Uh, Emmy, you got your hand up first. I should treat myself to slow vivisection of those two. All right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember that now. Had I been born where laws are less strict and tastes less dainty, I should treat myself to a slow vivisection of those two as an evening's amusement. Three points, Emmy. That is pretty mustache-twirling villainy right there. Heathcliff is a villain, but you gotta admire the fact that he he speaks what's on his mind. <laughs> doesn't, he doesn't beat around the bush. Hashtag no filter. Uh, why does Linton... Okay, so blubbering poor blubbering linton uh kathy goes to give him a cup of tea why does he refuse it emmy her tears dropped into the tea <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. i can't I drink so tea. tea with tears in it <laughs> bring me right. another one give me some tea i'm thirsty and then i'll tell you he answered mrs dean go away i don't like you standing over me now, Catherine, you're letting your tears fall into my cup. I won't drink that. Give me another. <laughs> oh, my God. That's horrible. I almost made the discussion question for this for this episode. So let's talk about how much of a little shit Linton is. Oh, my but God. I feel like one, one at a time. Um, that could be yeah. a whole episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Emmy, oh, another three-pointer. You were on the money with that one. You were, you were quick on the on the uptake. What? Okay, so we got a lot of... Linton gets called a, a few different creatures. But uh, what creature does Nellie Dean call Linton when she hears his and Heathcliff's plan? Does she tell him directly? Uh, yeah. Uh, Daniel, your hand's up. I think this might be the wrong answer, but do you mean when she calls him a cockatrice? She does call him that. I'm actually going to give... Okay. Daniel, that wasn't the, the answer I was looking for, but you're right. She does call him that as well. So I'll give you two points for that. Um, uh, Emmy? Pitiful changeling? Is that it? It's not an animal. Oh, you're right. I will give you two points for it because, yeah, she... Everyone calls Linton a lot of things, <laughs> but when the sort of grand plan that... He's going to marry Kathy and get control of Thrushcross Grange. She says, and do you imagine that beautiful lady, that healthy, hearty girl, will tie herself to a little perishing monkey like you? Oh, yeah, I even highlighted that. Oh, <laughs> that was just, <laughs> that was just one of the really fun Nellie Dean sick burns. This, this whole scene, it's a whole chapter is disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> Heathcliff to Linton. Uh, you'll be. Don't worry about her. You'll be able to slap her around in a month or two. I know, right? God, what a, what an asshole. Anyway, continuing with the theme of the many creatures that Linton is. Um, after Heathcliff finally lets him go to bed, in what animalistic manner does Linton make his exit? Uh, Andrew, a dog, or more specifically, a spaniel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll give you two points. He spoke these words, holding the door open for his son to pass, and the latter achieved his exit exactly as a spaniel might, which suspected the person who attended on it of designing a spiteful squeeze. Uh, Jerry, you have yet to get on the board. Let's let's give you an opportunity. Um, 
How long is Nellie Dean in captivity at Wuthering Heights? Five nights, four days. That is correct. Five nights and four days I remained altogether seeing nobody but Harriton once every morning. Three points to Judy. Okay. Probably my favorite... My favorite Linton detail of this whole section. Oh What's Linton sucking on when Nellie Dean sees him upon her release from captivity? Okay, Daniel. Sugar candy. Sugar candy. Yep. A stick of sugar candy. Linton lay on the settle, sole tenant, sucking a stick of sugar candy and pursuing my movements with apathetic eyes. Ugh, I just cannot with Linton in, in these chapters. My, my note was like, just like a Bond villain. <laughs> yes, Mr. Bond. <laughs> For some reason, I'm picturing a lollipop. Like, that's just what comes to mind. Like, or one of those absurd, like, big spiral rainbow-colored lollipops. He's wearing a sailor suit. I was imagining, like, a low-budget candy cane just with, like, nothing in it, <laughs> just pure sugar. How old is Edgar Linton when he dies? Oh, this was shocking. Uh, Judy. Uh, I highlighted this. 39. That is correct. Very young he looked, though his actual age was 39. One would have called him 10 years younger, at least. 39 which is, is kind of young. Which is a welcome change for, for, you know, poor Hindley, who was grotesquely aged before his time when he died. We have Edgar, who was remarkably well-preserved for, for, for a corpse. That's kind of a, boy, that's kind of a theme in this episode, huh? Three points, Judy. She makes it sound like 39 is, like, super old, but, like, it's like, okay, I guess if you're one of the Brontes and, like, everybody dies <laughs> at the age of, like, 20 <laughs> from some, like, thing they picked up in a boarding school, then I guess 39 seems real old, but, like, wow. Wow. What is the exact minute of Edgar Linton's death? Emmy? It says none could have noticed the exact minute of his death. It was so uh, entirely without struggle. Yep, it was a trick question. Oh, and you got God it. Damn yep, it. None could have noticed the exact minute of his death. It was so entirely without a struggle. Emmy, let's give you a... You know what? You, you called my trick question. Let's give you five whole points for that. Woohoo! Last question of the pop quiz. After Linton's daring to assist Catherine in escaping from Wuthering Heights, what horrific bodily torture does Heathcliff visit upon poor Linton. Daniel, your hand shot right up. He makes him sit in a chair for a really long time. <laughs> <laughs> I, I brought like him down chairs. Well, I mean, that's the worst thing you can do to poor Linton is make him sit in a chair. I brought him down one evening, the day before yesterday, and just set him in a chair and never touched him afterwards. <laughs> I send Harriton out and we have the room to ourselves. In two hours, I called Joseph to carry him up again. So I guess he probably yelled at him or whatever, but didn't touch him. Doesn't have to. Just sitting him in a chair is apparently enough to, to, to torture Linton. Little fucking wiener. Anyway. Um, yeah, Daniel, let's... Uh, you were so quick on the uptake. I'll give you five points for that. Okay, I'm going to tabulate the points now. So we've got a pretty clear winner this week. Uh, Emmy with... 18 points. You are the teacher's pet. In second place, Daniel, you got 10 points. Judy got six points and Andrew five. You're the dunce this week, Andrew. All right. Again, I think it's two weeks in a row, isn't it? Let's find the dunce last week, too. Last time. Yes, as a matter of fact, you yeah. were, Andrew. Wow. And, and uh, I'm very yeah. disappointed in your, in, in, in your progress. All right. All so, right. Uh, Daniel, you're up. And, Emmy, do you want to assign a reader-response oh, exercise for Daniel? Yes. Um, I uh, think you should do a poem written in rhyming couplet. Or a ooh. David Letterman-style top ten list. What do we think, guys? I think top ten list. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah. Okay. Top 10 list it is. So next week we're reading chapters 30 to 32. And this that'll actually be our penultimate episode. Didn't think it was going to just going to fly by so painfully fast. Um, Emphasis on painfully. Yes. 
That closes the coffin on our moldering ninth episode, and now we can finally have some peace. I'd like to thank our sole authority figure, Charlotte Sampson, for keeping us on track. Maybe lose the whips and chains, Charlotte. Uh, this clanking is awfully hard to edit out of the recording. I would be remiss if I failed to thank my fellow readers, Daniel Wishes and Emmy Doe and Judy Ito. As I mentioned in the intro, Daniel has his own podcast called Weird Movie Club, of which I am a loyal listener, so go, you know, go check that out. Thanks to Ryo Namegaya for the moral support. Also, thanks to Akihiro Akane, who composed our theme tune. The show is edited by me. And finally, thanks to you, our listeners. Like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. Rate and review. We will love you. Bit of rhyming there. If you want to support the podcast with shekels, shillings, sesterci, or any other form of currency, ancient or modern, head over to the Yokohama Theatre Group webpage at ytg.jp and click the support button to make a one-time donation, or better yet, at this point, leave a five-star review on iTunes, Stitcher, or the podcast platform of your choice. If you don't think this was a five-star podcast, please keep that opinion to yourself. Or contact us on social media if you really think we must know, just please leave our reviews out of this. Um, and finally, thanks to Emily Bronte, celebrated author and champion dog puncher. We'll be back soon for episode 10. Check the show notes. See you then! Class dismissed. And, of course, as I said, Miss Charlotte Sampson is here, ready to crack the whip. You know what? I gotta go back, because I didn't let you guys talk in that again. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> Every time. I'm especially bad tonight. Um, but yeah. Our wayward readers are in order of height, shortest to tallest. Judy Ito, the Lilliputian sized art assistant artistic director of the Yokohama Theater Group. Dr. Emmy Doe, no bigger than Thumbelina, but always looking down on you from on top of some goddamn mountain. Dan and I did it again. Stop me, just jump in. Fuck. The problem is that Judy's in the front and she won't do it, so okay. Sorry, I gotta, I gotta word this one carefully. Don't want to offend any ghosts. <laughs> oh no, we can say whatever shit we want about ghosts. Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. Oh, we'll accept that. <laughs> this podcast is copyright 2020, the Yokohama Theatre Group. Our theme song was written by Akihiro Akane and is used with his permission. got to listen to the theme song I wasn't aware of the fact that we hate cedars so much